0: Once he had spilled his beans, I just went ahead, and I told him everything. And I said, well, now that you ask, boom. I told him my whole story up to that point, and I and I started making the case against Sola Scriptura, the case for the Catholic faith, talking about early church history, talking about sacramental view of life. I, I just spilled everything out that I knew at that point or I was thinking at that point. So... He sits there And then and the Baptist all agents
1: from. raided the restaurant and, you know, all the... Uh, the yeah. waiter turns around and slaps the cuffs on you. you. This is part of a sting operation.
0: Yeah, the waiter turns around and he pulls his fake nose and glasses off and he's a Baptist pastor, you know? And, <laughs> <laughs>
1: Hello and welcome to another hog walloping episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swamin along with my colleague Ken Hensley. We're with the Coming Home Network and uh, if you don't know much about us, we're an organization of people who have come from just about every background you can imagine, including Ken being a Baptist pastor. Uh, We all ended up in the Catholic Church and if you want some resources because that's your story too. Check us out at chnetwork.org. Lots and lots of stories there. Uh, And if you're someone who's looking for community and people to talk to, uh, we have a whole community of people who are either on that journey or have made that journey themselves. You can go to community.chnetwork.org. Many of them are pastors, just like my buddy Ken here. Uh, Ken... As we had talked in previous episodes, some stuff was starting to occur to you, the case for the Catholic Church, um, but this was not something that happened overnight. It was a struggle on account of all the obstacles, as it were, (laughs) and I know that uh, because you were pastoring uh, and you were reading this thing, you know, these things, you knew that this was not something that was going to be a decision you could take lightly.
0: No, not at all, and let me begin today. We're going to talk today about the obstacles. That's what I'm going to do is tell the story, talk about the obstacles that I faced, but I want to begin by saying I feel like the last two episodes we've recorded, from my perspective, totally inadequate. What I've been doing in those last two was supposedly explaining the reasons that I had for coming to believe that I really needed to become Catholic, and the thing is, it's just so big, Matt, because really it involved a rethinking of my entire Christian worldview so it involved church history it involves spirituality it involved theology biblical studies it, it just it it involves so much and I feel like I was just barely able to touch on a couple of the most important issues and so I just want to say to those listening or watching or perceiving or whatever you know uh, through a mind meld or something like that you know you've got to go back and watch previous episodes of on the journey with Matt and Ken where we did entire series on the issue of authority, *Sola Scriptura*, be- beginning with episode three, we did an entire series on *Sola Fide* justification. Something I didn't even talk about in the last two weeks. Just so many other issues. Go back; it's only eighty-five episodes or so. You can you could watch them all, I think, and then you'll then you'll have a better picture. But anyway, today we talk about obstacles. Correct?
1: Did we talk about obstacles? About all the things that you uh, okay you, you thought? Well, this looks true and is beautiful and good, but I have a job and damn, we in a tight spot now. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, all the stuff that was like yeah, the sinking feelings of what are the implications of all this and am I crazy? So, I mean, what were the list? What was the yeah. list of the uh, the main obstacles? Yeah, we will going to do as many as we can of them today.
0: Yeah. I am... Um, See, here's the thing. It's been so many years now, Matt, that I can look back now and I can be smiling and I can be laughing as I talk about these obstacles. But it, it's sort of like remembering the time when your arm got chopped off like 30 years before or something like that. It's it, But it was so painful at the time. Here are the main things that I faced. When I began to read and listen and learn and I began to be drawn toward the beauty and the truth of the Catholic faith, first ob- obstacle was Tina, my wife. Um, because Tina had no interest whatsoever in becoming Catholic. And, and it wasn't that Tina was anti-Catholic. And in fact, Tina was not anti-Catholic. She, she has a nun, or she had a nun at the time up in Quebec, Canada, who had written her beautiful letters when her father died. Um, Tina's father died um, very unexpectedly when she was only 17 years old, and it was really a big deal. And she had a real fondness for this aunt. She wasn't um, anti-Catholic, so much as she was just really happy with what we had you know i was the pastor of a small evangelical bible church baptist leaning we were really happy there the church was fantastic we had a real spiritual home we had some of the best friends we'd ever made in our lives were there in the church and we had security you know we knew that we could basically remain there forever and so She just had no interest. So, you know, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think when I came home and I'm suddenly sitting around in the chair reading Thomas Howard's book, Evangelical is Not Enough, or reading Ludwig Ott, The Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, she was just uh, really in shock. And so we couldn't even talk about it. Um, Really for, I'm guessing now, Matt, but I would say for about two years, we couldn't even talk about what I was learning without it winding up in some kind of real argument or, or worse. Um, I I remember so many times when Tina said to me, you know, why are you even, why, why are you reading those books? Why don't you just throw them in the trash and just, just stop? I mean, you have a beautiful situation. Our family is happy. Just forget about it. And, uh, and I, I remember I would sort of just say, I would respond in some kind of, I respond by saying something along the lines of, well, you know, when I started reading these books, I didn't think it would be true. And now I'm kind of wondering if it is true. And so, you know, what am I going to do? I just like shut my eyes and just throw the books into the trash or something like that. Um, And so, but the point is, it was really, really hard for a long time. That's obstacle number one. Obstacle number two was, well, the fact that I had a job (laughs) And, and I had an income. And I was never going to be rich, you know, being a pastor. Um, at the same time, I had this paycheck that just magically appeared in my mailbox every two weeks. It was something I didn't have to think about. And we were able to live. You know, we we bought a little house, very little house, a little prefab house, you know, on, on lease land, you know, the cheapest thing we could find. But we, we had... We could save, we could go on vacations, we went camping with the kids, we traveled around. And so, you know, I just knew that that was another major obstacle. I knew enough to know that if I resigned my ministry to become Catholic, um, that I was going to have to recreate myself, start all over. And, and, and who knows whether my master's degree in, in, in theology would be worth anything out in the world. So that, that's obstacle number two. Oh, those are two bad, number, right? Yeah.
1: Just your marriage and your career. <laughs> I mean, no big deal, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. This is. I think it's so important that you bring this up too, because I think that uh, for a lot of people who are cradle Catholics and are thinking, oh, well, mm-hmm. you know, if we could just convince all these Protestants uh, of these truths of the Catholic faith that they become Catholic and they forget that the, there's some pretty high stakes. I mean, it's not just about mm-hmm. like. You know, it, part of what can happen in that situation is you're afraid to even investigate whether or not it's true any further, because of everything that's on the line. You know, and with career and, and marriage and things like that.
0: Yeah, you, you know, in fact, what I primarily do here at the Coming Home Network is I work with um, Protestant pastors from every conceivable denomination and scattered literally around the world, and and so I'm going into detail on this you know not because i want to tell my my own story of being a martyr or something like that because but i want other protestant protestants in general but protestant pastors especially to um to understand that they that i'm someone who understands where they're coming from you know that 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 i did go through it and i understand it um yeah and what you say about it being a um whatever you just said you know <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I can't remember now, but you, you were you're basically just reiterating that it's a hard thing. It's not a simple thing for people. And you know, it, it's not a simple thing for even laymen and laywomen uh, becoming Catholic because often they have family members that are just very anti-Catholic or think they've gone crazy. But yeah, in a special way, of course, for someone whose job and whose income is based on being a Protestant pastor, it's a tough, tough road. And, and so I, I want to elaborate on that because actually a third obstacle for me was, was the sense of self that I had, my, my identity as a Protestant pastor. I mean, really, everything that I had done, going to Bible college, going to seminary, the being ordained into the ministry and becoming a pastor, everything I had done had been along this particular trajectory. And so that is something that, uh, that the, the pastors who are beginning to look at the Catholic faith really struggle with. You know, and so I do want to say something about how I answered that in my own life, Matt. And this may not fit fit with everyone, but, you know, we speak of having been called to the ministry. We use that word. And so I had to ask myself, well, if I become Catholic, then what does that say about my idea that I was called to the ministry? And this is how I worked it out for me. Is I took this idea of what does it mean that I was called to the ministry and I tried to break it down into into its component parts and what it was what was my call well what it was is that from the time I came to know Christ I was just one of those who was really on fire to learn uh, to read and to want to share to want to teach to want to spread what I was learning um, I had a real desire to grow as a Christian I had a desire to share that with others, and then I desired, I had a desire to help others and to help them grow, and so it was sort of natural, and, and other people saw that, and so I was one of those people that people, you know, people around me started saying, hey, you know, you ought to think about becoming a pastor, hey, you know, you know blah, blah, the kind of thing that is said. And so the way that I answered that for me was, was this. I realized that when I broke it down into those component parts, that none of those were things that I would have to stop doing if I became Catholic. If I became Catholic, I could still love learning the Word of God and learning theology and apologetics. I could still teach other people. Even if I didn't have a formal teaching position, I could teach people in, in my life and the conversations. I, I mean, even if I was giving out shoes at a bowling alley, I could be an apostle. And I, I thought of the Apostle Paul. What did he do to earn a living? He made tents. He
1: made tents, Right.
0: So here, here we have like the greatest missionary and the greatest apostle in the history of the world, and he, um, he didn't earn his living being a pastor. You know, and so I had to make that transformation of, of, of realizing all of the things that I love, all of the things I want to do and that I wanted to do that drove me in the direction of the pastorate, these are all things that I can continue to do. I may not be paid to do it ever again, um, but I can do these things. And that's how I made it past the issue of um, of um, identity or having this, you know, this, well, oh, but wait, I'm a pastor. You know, that's my identity. I have to remain a pastor forever. And this leads to the fourth one, the, the fourth obstacle that I faced, which was a, a sincere and serious distrust in myself. <laughs> I mean, I knew myself. I was in my late 30s when I began to study this stuff, like 38, 39, when I began to study and I knew myself. I mean, how many tangents had I gone on in my life b- before the age of thirty-eight? How many, uh, you know, uh, passions had grabbed me and I'd run off in one direction? You were a for musician,
1: a, a card counter, right? It uh, worked. Yeah, a gambler. I staff. thought I was going to be a professional I mean, gambler.
0: It. You know, I knew that I was. Uh, you know, that I could be influenced, and so I had a real distrust because I thought to myself, "Man, what if I allow myself to be drawn in this direction?" And I get excited about it. I resign and I become Catholic. And then I realize six months later it was a mistake, or a year later, or two years. And what that meant was that I really had to be sure. And I thought to myself, I have to be positive before I make a step. And what that meant was that I was very alone because I couldn't share this with anybody in my church. You know, what if I shared it with the people in the church, you know, to sort of, you know, in the men's prayer meeting, like, hey, I'm really struggling with this. You know, and then I get thrown out of the ministry. And then three months later, I decide, oh, yeah, you know, Catholicism is wrong. <laughs> it's dead wrong. You know, so. Yeah. Well, it was what's crazy
1: <laughs> is, you know, you, you mentioned that you can't share it with anybody. You know, we've we work with all kinds of people in all sorts of situations. And mm-hmm. uh, you and I both talk to people where um, a pastor shares it with their spouse. Right. And their spouse out of concern for the soul of their husband goes and shares yeah. it with like some trusted elder in the church saying, Hey, can you talk to my husband? He's in a crisis of faith. And the elder of the church's response is not like, Yeah, let's pray for that guy. It's like, whoa, this guy's is a, he's a wolf among the sheep, right? Let's fire him, right? It's, I mean, these are all kinds of things that people deal with. Um, but even too, exactly like, I mean, I'm true. trying to think about how to communicate what this feeling was like for those of us who had it. Like, am I losing my mind? Um, you know, mm-hmm, am mm-hmm. I, you know, cause I was living yeah. in a christian punk rock commune when these kinds of things were going on everybody there were a lot of people Mm -hmm. that thought i was sort of Mm -hmm. you know kind of crazy and that this might be another phase but this was different than like another kind of phase of interest um this is much more than like a change in taste right this is like a reorientation of what i understood about the nature of reality and uh, to try trying to think about like how like the best way I could think of to describe it to a cradle Catholic who's never experienced like this. Like, what if, like, one day the Jehovah's Witnesses come over to your house and they start talking to you and you're like, wait, I think these guys may have it right. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. think about the, the craziest person yeah. that you could, like, think of, like, upsetting your worldview and, like, yeah. suddenly you think that they might be the right ones this whole time. Like, it's hard to explain, but you you start to think... One part of you is like I'm discovering something amazing and true and good and beautiful. The other yeah. part's like, maybe I'm being deceived right now in like this really yeah. seductive way. Mm-hmm. And you know, I mean, it's a it's a it's a struggle. the 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 example that comes to mind to me is recently um, we had on the journey home Father Andrew Jones. He came from mm-hmm. a Baptist background and and he grew up thinking that you know whatever God wants you to do is probably going to be the thing that you don't, you want to do the least. Right. Mm -hmm. So he's going to call you to go serve in a, you know, you like your luxuries. He's going to go call you to serve in some mission field where there's no running water. Right. And so when he started to um, fall in love with the Catholic church, he's like, maybe this is actually the devil talking to me because it seems so good and beautiful. Right. And maybe I'm, I know I'm not supposed to enjoy whatever God is calling me to. So if I'm enjoying this and like appreciating it and falling in love with it, maybe that's proof that it's not the truth. Like these are the kind of head games that you get into when you're, and when when you're you're alone sometimes.
0: and, And when you're backed into a situation where you're feeling very alone. Exactly. Yeah. My wife has no interest in what's happening. I'm not sure that it's true. And so I don't want to come out with it. You know, for instance, you know, I could keep teaching in my church things that were true. I could keep preaching every week things that were true. The Bible's a big book; there are a lot of true things in there. But I'm not going to come out with it unless I'm sure. And yet, I'm just alone. I'm in this box. I'm listening to, to debates. I'm, I'm reading everything I can get my. You, you know, I I had some conversations with Scott Hahn along the way here and there. And really, Jimmy Aiken, I would say, became my one of my best friends during that time. I contacted him down in San Diego. And Jimmy came up and became a friend. He stayed at my house once or twice, but he and I would meet and sit in restaurants, and I would fire questions at him that I was having, and Jimmy would help me out. He 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 was a good friend, but and then there was one gentleman in my church that I told who had been an old friend and someone I thought I could really trust. But beyond that, I was quite alone and dealing with all this. My wife's not interested. Oh my God, this is all I've ever done. This is my job. This is my income. I was quite frightened, and 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 then, am I insane? Yeah, am I insane? Is this just some kind of this some kind of thing I'm doing? And I'm out there on this tangent, and I'm going to come to my senses at some point and realize I'm insane and all that. And l- let me give you an illustration of of this fear, real quick. Uh, during those years, because it's about three and a half to four years from when I first heard that Scott had become Catholic to when I actually became when I left the ministry. Um, I was in this organization with other pastors from my denomination, and we would design and lead the junior high summer camp and senior high summer camps every year. And so I'm up at one of these summer camps, and I'm with about 20 or 30 of my fellow pastors who are all American Baptist pastors. And I'm talking with them, and I'm sharing with them, and praying with them. I'm leading this camp with them, and none of them knows that I'm like a weird, uh, half-insane spy, you know? who's like reading Catholicism in the background and wondering and all that. And They don't know this about me. Okay, one of the pastors invites me out to lunch one day. And this was a pastor that I didn't know well. He had only been out in California a couple of years and he was pastoring a very large church down in Orange County. And he just came up to me and he said, hey, I'd like to have lunch with you. And so, sure. So we went to a restaurant and we sit down and he looks across the table and he says, so what do you think of Catholicism? Okay, my first response is my first response was Oh no, he Man. knows.
1: He found <laughs> <Yeah>. me out. <laughs> my
0: my cover's yeah. been blown. My you know, something happened. My cover's been blown and I am just staring at him. And then he's, I, I say, why do you ask? <laughs> and he says, well, he says, back when, I, he goes, I was a pastor in a church in Connecticut, and this young priest came by one day, and we became friends. And and anyway, we began to talk, and, and he began to make the case for the Catholic faith. And he, he said he was really a godly young priest and a, and a smart guy. And I just feel like some of the points he was making were pretty powerful. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and I realize, okay, my cover hasn't been blown. He doesn't know anything about me. He's asking me, he, he was asking me because I was kind of known, I wasn't the only one, but I was known within the group as being kind of an egghead or a theologian, the, theolog kind of person. So he's asking me. But anyway, once he had spilled his beans, I just went ahead and I told him everything. And I said, well, now that you ask, boom. I told him my, my whole story up to that point. And I, and I started making the case Against sola scriptura, the case for the Catholic faith, talking about early church history, talking about sacramental view of life. I I I just spilled everything out that I knew at that point, or I was thinking at that point. So he sits there, and then the Baptist agents
1: raided the restaurant, and you know, all the uh, the waiter turns around and slaps the cuffs on you. You, Youth is part of a sting operation.
0: Yeah, the waiter turns around, he pulls his fake nose and glasses off, and he's a Baptist pastor, you know. (laughs) <laughs> he looks oh, like exactly like Billy Graham. He's got a Schofield reference Bible under his arm. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. I thought it was like a. I thought it was like a little notebook that he was taking as manager of the restaurant. It turns out he pulls off the cover and it's a Schofield reference. Anyway, we drive it's like, back two to the Waters.
1: Camp. Yeah.
0: Well, just to you know, this is just to illustrate how I was feeling at the time and what I was going through. We drive back to the camp and we're sitting in the car before we get out to go back to the camp. And this pastor looked at me and he said. Exactly this, he said. You have hit me below the belt, which I, I assume you understand what that means. Okay, I <laughs> he said. You hit me below means, the belt. Yeah. He he said you have hit me b- below the belt today. He said, but I got to tell you something. He said I'm going to go back to my church and my family, and I'm not going to do anything more with this conversation. I'm not going to look into it because he said I love what I do, I love my church. I love my life. I'm not going to think about this anymore. And so um, that was a temptation for me. In fact, there were times, and this is one of the worst things I did, there were times when I wanted Tina to be happy. She was unhappy about everything I was learning and what I was doing. And so whenever I would read, and I also just didn't want to have to resign and give up my life, Whenever I would read an argument from a Protestant source that even seemed to scratch the surface of giving an answer to the Catholic claims, I would embrace it. And I did this several times. I would embrace it, and I would say to myself, oh, there's the answer. I don't need to become Catholic. And then here's the worst part. I would come home and I would tell Tina, you know, along the lines of, honey, you don't have to worry. I read this. Really strong argument. Catholicism is not true. Don't worry about it. So then she would become very happy and I would become happy and then we would have this sort of happy life for like a month until I found myself sitting in the corner opening up Ludwig Ott's, you know, Mm. fundamentals of Catholic dogma, reading a little bit more or listening to another tape or putting on another debate or talking to Jimmy again and all of a sudden it was like this giant kirby vacuum cleaner just turned on and sort of just drawing me closer closer closer.
1: it is interesting you know when you so when i these doors started to crack for me and you know at first i didn't know what it was Mm -hmm. that was drawing me you know because as i mentioned in my Mm -hmm. episodes mine was more of like a conversion of the imagination through like the wonder of chesterton and you know People like that. And so I didn't realize what was happening, I think, until it was too late. And then when I did realize what was happening, it was a it was a few years in the process, not many years. Uh, but, you know, we've talked to, I mean, I think you know Keith Nestor, <clears throat> who's been a guest on The Journey mm-hmm. Home. He does all kinds of great uh, stuff mm-hmm. uh, through his own website, former Methodist pastor. And, and he, you know, talks about <clears throat> doing essentially what your friend did from the restaurant uh, that turned out not to be a sting operation is... He got too close. It scared him. He put it all on the shelf. I think for like ten years, right oh my. until uh, another you know kind of event happened that he couldn't ignore. But that's what I mean. It's amazing how I can many. See that. Uh, it, well, and I, I deal mean, with and you pastors. Work with these pastors all the time. That's what they do. I work with pas- uh, and pastors right now that it's are a doing scary that, thing.
0: That, you know, and f- for different reasons, um, some of them, some of them, their wife has said, "If you become Catholic, I will," you know divorce you or or or, or, you know and or some of them are much older and they're thinking i'm gonna retire in like eight years there's no way on earth i'll get another job if i resign so there there are a lot of permutations on this theme but i knew a person who
1: who married a catholic and uh was told by their mother on their mother's deathbed please just promise me you'll never like become catholic like you know your husband yeah i mean like these are these are the kinds of things that sometimes people have to deal i mean it's a it's a horrible thing <clears throat> and again you know i think this this goes to the, the empathy that i think a lot of us who are catholics um really need to have for people in these situations because if you're a serious pastor in mm-hmm. any denomination you're always going to be reading deeper you're always going to be mm-hmm. you know studying you know more fully like you want to know the scriptures as well as possible because you have care for a flock. But what do you do when you know that to go one inch deeper will put you potentially you know, opens the in door the to stream something of Catholic you know. thought. Yeah. Like what do you do?
0: Okay. Um, so obstacles, I've talked about the obstacle of my wife, Tina, the obstacle of the fact that I had a job and I had an income The obstacle of the fact that I conceived of myself as a pastor. That was my identity, that's what I did. And then the obstacle of distrusting myself because I knew that I was the kind of person that could run off and do crazy things. Fifthly, the last obstacle really that I wanna talk about, it was the obstacle of my father. And now my father is someone I talked about pretty extensively in the first episode of this series. And here's the thing, after my dad converted to Christ when he was about 46 years old. You know, he became a very serious, very sincere evangelical for the rest of his life. And he was the kind of person where if he could have, he would have wanted to become a Baptist pastor, right? He was a fundamentalist Baptist. He would have wanted to become a pastor. But you know, when you've been married and divorced four times and now you're married, married to your fifth wife, it's a little tough in a Baptist context, right, to, you know, to sell the idea of sending you to seminary to become a pastor. But anyway, he, he would have wanted to be. So on a lay level, he was a leader in the church. And because of that, when I then came to Christ after he prayed for me for 10 years or so, and then I became a Baptist pastor, well, you can imagine what that meant to him. And uh, so, in that sense, I was the apple of his eye. And my dad would drive into LA and he'd come to my church and he'd sit in the front pew, and he'd have tears running down his cheeks, listening to me preach. That's what I had in my mind. And because the only kind of Christianity that my dad had ever known, what, what was a very serious fundamentalist Baptist Christianity. He, he was very anti-Catholic. In fact, Matt, I remember coming over to his house to visit one, one day. I was probably about three quarters of the way along the path on my journey toward the church, and I walked into his house. And uh, John Paul II's face was on the television. You know, so this is back in like nineteen ninety-three or four or something like that. Some like news story yeah.
1: or something. Ninety-five,
0: yeah, some news story. His face was on there. I walk into the house. My dad looks at the TV and he goes, "Oh, he says I can't stand to look at that man's face."
1: Oh man. Well, that shuts down any possibility of you ever saying anything about Catholicism, (laughs) you know, good grief.
0: You know, and again, I want to emphasize, he had a sincere faith in Christ and a love for the Lord. It was sincere in accordance with what he had known. And what he had been taught was Bible-only Christianity, simple gospel, basic Baptist theology, You got your Billy Graham books on the shelf, you know, uh. You know, Doctor Stanley, his books on the shelf, and Catholicism is a warped, degraded, deformed, dark, dark version of Christianity that teaches a damning system of works righteousness. Um, It's the whore of Babylon. That's that's what he knew. So I walk in, and you know, and I'm being drawn powerfully toward the the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith at this time. And my dad says, you know, I can't stand to look at that man's face. So so this was one of the the primary obstacles for me personally. I I was afraid for all the reasons I've given so far, but I think on the most visceral level, I was afraid because of my dad. I I, I just thought, man, when the day comes when I resign my ministry and I tell my father that I'm becoming Catholic, that may kill him. Now, now, I'm going to pick this thread up next week and Explain how that all panned out, but I just want to present it as that today, and and then I want to go go to okay, what happened? Let me tell the story of, of how it came down, then how I did resign. About three years into my study, um, Tina comes to me, and she says, "So what are you going to do?" <laughs> you know, and I'm like, "It's like, it's like you're standing on a thousand foot cliff, you know, and like, well, are you going to jump or you're not? You know, what are you going to do?" And I remember I said to her. I think I have to resign. It's time. I have to go. And Tina says, But are you 100% sure? You know, do you know? And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, man, 100%. How, what percentage do I have to be sure? You know? you know, know What kind of algorithm can I run that will give me an exact percentage? And I said to her, I said, well, I, I, I'm pretty sure. I, th- I think I have to. And she said, please. She begged with me. She says, please, will you give it one more year? Will you study, pray, think about it? I'll talk to you about it more than I have. I'll be open to what you're learning. Give it one more year. And so I said, I gave in and I said, okay. I'll give it a year. Tina leaves the room. (laughs) Believe it or not, she comes back into the room and she plops this contract down in front of me. She had quickly written up a contract that I was agreeing. I I was agreeing to give it one more year and she said sign on the line which is dotted. (laughs) And um, so I signed on the line. Okay, but anyway, things began to get better. Tina had been absorbing almost by osmosis the things I was learning and some of the arguments that I, that I had in my mind through the conversations that we had had. And then at a certain point, I, I did the most brilliant thing I've ever done in my life without knowing that it was brilliant. And that is, I was collecting all of these quotations from the early church fathers that were supporting various aspects of Catholic teaching, the sacramental view of baptism, the Holy Eucharist, real presence, the Eucharist as a sacrifice, bishops and every, you, you know, all of that. Okay. And back then there's no internet. So it's not like I'm cutting and pasting these into a document or something. I had them all marked in books. I had all these little slips of paper and a ton of books. I gave them to Tina and I said, would you type these up for me while I'm at work? And so I I really didn't think of the effect it would have, but Tina began typing up quotations from Polycarp, St. Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr. Did she realize that she's
1: doing this? like what is what it is that she's writing or does she just think yeah well Ken reads a lot of theology books
0: no no I told this her I said these are the nuggets. early these are the early church fathers these are books that describe what the early what Christianity believed the faith and practice of the church in the second century the third the fourth the fifth and she typed and as she was typing she was becoming affected by what she was reading and It's not like we really talked about it. I don't remember her saying to me, hey, I'm becoming affected by what I'm reading. The way that it came out is that one night, a Sunday night in church after the evening service, there was some conversation that broke out about baptism. And I was in the room maybe 10, 20 other people and my associate pastor was in the room too. And we were talking about the meaning of baptism. And um, at a certain point, Tina who 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 by now was becoming a patristic scholar on her, in her in her own right she raised <laughs> by
1: osmosis she, right
0: she raises her hand and all of a sudden she says well uh, polycarp said you know and she starts blabbing you know like so this, this loose paraphrase of polycarp right there in the room and i remember my associate pastor just went like ah polycarp can go fish and it is a famous story okay and it's a story you know well but anyway I really do believe at that moment I looked over at Tina and I felt like she had this look on her face. It was sort of a combination of hey, doesn't this guy care about the early church fathers? And and I think I do care about the early church fathers and I think you you may be right. It, it was all kind of contained in that, okay? So so in that last year Tina came a long way to where by the time I realized that I had to resign. She she was on board with me, okay, and she was yeah. And what year would you say board. this
1: was, um, by the way? Well, it was
0: 1996 when I resigned. It was September of 1996 when I finally told the church, okay. But you know how God sometimes will just turn up the heat um, when He wants you to do make a step of faith. It kind of well, you know, Abraham. He turns up the heat. You know, take Isaac, go up onto the mountain. You know, this kind of thing that's turning up the heat as a test of faith. This is what happened. I was getting ready to resign, and I went back to St. Andrew's Abbey out in the high de- desert of Southern California, that Benedictine monastery that I have been visiting throughout my for, for many years now. I went up there to pray, Matt, and to prepare myself to do something that I knew I did not have the courage to do. I was just afraid in every way. And I went up there to pray and to prepare. While I'm up there, I called home to check on things. Tina comes on the phone and she says, I have to tell you something. She said, your dad has been diagnosed with, today has, was diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease. And um, they say that it's it's progressing very quickly and he's not going to live that long. So I hang up the phone and I'm thinking, oh my, maybe I shouldn't go, with, go through with it. Maybe I should wait. Um, and then I'm thinking, no, I have to, because I was split in half. at At this point, I could barely stand to walk into the pulpit on Sunday morning and preach. I felt like I've used the illustration before, like a man in a burning building. I felt like the building was on fire. I felt like at that point I've been crawling around on the floor for a long time to uh, to avoid the smoke, you know. But now it it had simply come come to the point where I had to run out the door. I had to go, and so but that threw me into a struggle where I'm praying now and I'm thinking, do I put it off? Do I do it? What do I do? Then I come back, then I get ready to tell the church because my decision finally is, I have to do this, I'm gonna go through with it, I'm gonna resign. Literally, the week before I plan on telling the church, my associate pastor comes to me on a Sunday night and he says, can we talk? Can we go for a drive and talk? Now, one of the, th- one of the things that had been propping me up, as it were, as I prepared to tell the church, was the fact that my associate pastor was well-loved in the congregation and that I would be able to, in a sense, leave the church in his hands. They weren't gonna be just destitute with, without a pastor or something like that. So that, that, that's one of the things that had been helping me to make the decision and to feel like I could do it. We go out for a drive and he, he, he begins to describe some things to me that were happening in his life that made me realize that he was gonna to need to step down from ministry for a while. So it's like that prop was being removed. And, but anyway, the heat was turned up, but the day came in which I, um, I called a deacon board meeting. The deacon board is the leadership meeting, usually in a Baptist church, but it's comprised of the deacons and me and my associate pastor. And in the deacon board meeting, I, uh, I, At at, at a certain point, I remember just, it's like the words are basically like engraven on my brain. I said, I need to tell you something. I'm not going to be able to remain here as your pastor. I have been in a deep, deep spiritual theological struggle for a while now. And I'm on my way into the Catholic Church. I just said it like that. And it was like this thermonuclear blast went off in the room. And I just remember the shocked looks on everyone's faces. What I remember mostly, there was an elderly gentleman in the congregation that I really loved and had gotten to know. And I went bowling with him and his couple of his friends. You know, we had like a little bowling team we formed and did together. And and uh, he he just got all choked up and looked like he was just starting to cry. And um, so I told the church. Then I told the entire congregation in a congregational meeting. Did you tell them the part
1: about um, why or no, at the congregational level?
0: No, I just gave them that simple kind of version. You know, I'm becoming Catholic. And I wanted to ease the situation. I I wanted to ease the damage. And so I said to the congregation, I said, look, if you want me to remain here as your pastor until you find a new pastor, I'll be happy to do that. And the church wanted me to do that. But the thing is, the church was very naive (laughs) And I was extremely naive because the second the denomination heard what was happening, um, I got a call. In fact, it it was that day because, you know, a a call went out to important people. This is what's happening. This is what Pastor Ken has said. And I got a call that day saying, uh, we want to meet with you tomorrow night (laughs) in in your office. So here I thought, you know, I'll remain here for another six months or so, maybe even a year as they look for a new pastor, but at least they'll know where I'm at. And all of a sudden I'm meeting in in my office and it was a, I don't remember five, six, seven people who were various leadership roles within the denomination. And they basically looked at me and said, so what's happening? <laughs> and I told them I'm becoming Catholic. And they just said, do you want one week to say goodbye or two? And I, I remember I, I said, um, I'll take two. And so basically, I, uh, two weeks, I preached my final sermon. And I walked out the door and uh, that is how it happened. That is what happened. I had people who were, I had a few people who were curious. I had a lot of people who were not curious at all. I had a few people who thought I had been taken captive by the devil. I had at least one family that said they never wanted to speak to me again. And um, that was it. And I'm gonna leave it there and pick up uh, next week it, whatever concluding thoughts you have or question i i will entertain
1: well I, I would just say that uh if this was about to be the the episode about obstacles uh we didn't solve i don't think any one of those except maybe the tina one <laughs> right um all the other you know, obstacles we solved the one about you know, are,
0: we solved the one about identity a little bit how i worked that through yeah um
1: um we got but, some solving but, but, yeah. to do next episode
0: <laughs> yeah
1: quite a bit Got, what are you gonna do with your life? Um, but that's what's what i gonna do now that she's what happened. out on her ear. Also, right? I mean, there's there's a whole bunch of stuff, a whole bunch of loose ends to tie up. But it, if nothing else, Ken, I hope what this does is for our um, our people who watch this, uh, who are in similar situations, mm-hmm. um, and feel exactly like you felt, you know. Walking into that meeting or feel like you felt walking into that restaurant where someone said the word Catholic and they flinched, right? Because they knew what they'd been up to, right? <laughs> they know what they've been reading and they know what's what's hitting them and striking them in the heart. Um, hopefully you realize that this is not, you're not the first person in the history of Christianity to be in a position where your, your desire to follow Christ has opened some doors that have got you thinking about Catholicism. So um, if that's you, uh, the first thing that I want to say is that you would be, um, and I'm speaking specifically to pastors, you would be so welcome at a Coming Home Network retreat. Uh, We have a scholarship fund in place Mm -hmm. that hopefully makes it to where you don't have to pay a nickel uh, to to get there and to to be part of one of those retreats. And if that's something you're interested in, please check out chnetwork.org slash retreats. Uh, Lay people can come on those as well, but we have a scholarship fund uh, in place for pastors in that situation.
0: Well, let me mention quickly on that, that we've had a great response to the retreat we're doing in May, and we're basically filled up. But anyone who contacts me to talk about that, we have another retreat in October, and we'll even create more retreats if we have to.
1: Yeah, and, and even if you can't come on a retreat, contact us. Uh, because yep. we have a pastoral care team designed to, to basically hear you out and figure out what's going on and, and just talk to you and listen and in some cases cry with you <laughs> because this is intense stuff. Uh, so uh, that through community.chnetwork.org, you can also find a wonderful community of people. That's it, basically a closed social network of, uh, of people who are walking through this stuff together. So, Ken Hensley. Whew. This was an intense one. I got to say. But
0: well, it's great to see you again. To great to talk time. with you. And well, next week it actually gets more intense because we have to go down a deep, dark valley before we come up uh, as I tell the story of what happened after uh, resigning the ministry. Yeah, so we'll it'll what get worse Ken before it gets better. Life?
1: Well, It gets worse before it gets better. Until then. Uh, well, Ken, thank you so much for sharing uh, this uh, pretty well, epic. <laughs> spiral in your life and i can't wait to see where where we come out on the other side in the tunnel but uh again thank you so much for being a part of this episode of on the journey until next time have a good one
0: good day